My first ever repeat guest is David Weston, Director of Operating System right. Security at Microsoft. David, how are you, my friend? Yeah, I've just been using it to uh, work out, be terrible at jujitsu, play a lot of video games, kind of all the things that uh, people do when they're do locked think up. We'll, do you think we'll have an in-person black hat this year? It sounds like they're shooting for it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how viable that is, given the risk aversion by nature of security right. people. I think even if it is sort of manageable within risk, I think that, you know, there's a lot of folks that just won't do it. Not to mention, I mean, a lot of folks are not the uh, most social to begin with. So it'll be interesting to see how it lands. But I hope, I mean, I hope if people are comfortable, yeah, but then they do There's go. also a bunch of people getting vaxxed who are just like super excited and just raging to just get out of there. I'm definitely one of those people that as soon as it's safe and reasonable, I will be very excited. All right, David, enough with the small talk. I invited you back on the show to talk about your security signals report. You guys did a survey. I believe it was a thousand, what do you call them? SDM, security decision makers, specifically focused on firmware security. Why firmware security? It wasn't on firmware security, actually. It was oh, uh, just, just it was kind of asking for trends, and that was one of the areas where it was like emerging threats. I see. So it was an overall kind of survey looking for trends, and this this firmware security uh, uh, thing bubbled up to the surface. So you put out a specific report around the security signals, and 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 one of the, th the well, let's back up. Anything in there surprised you that that? defending against firmware or just identifying having some visibility at that layer. Um, did it surprise you that that bubbled up in this report? Yeah, actually two things surprised me personally. The first was that um, the customers are indicating that they have as many firmware attacks as, as we saw in this report, which is roughly 83% had said they had some form of firmware attack. We had a pretty clear definition that firmware was, you know, that the software that is the layer between the operating system and the hardware. Uh, but it, they could also be suggesting, you know, IoT devices, which we know have seen some attacks as well. But it did surprise me overall that that trend is as high as the uh, customers provided the feedback that it was. The second thing that was actually surprising, um, and it, it probably coincides with this, which is that um, almost a third had some level of security prevention effort to secure firmware. So I think both of those were actually a little bit surprising to me. I suspected the attacks to be lower and certainly the defensive posture to be even lower. Right, because the data says 83% have experienced at least one firmware attack in the past two years. So, And I, and I know you tried to define what you meant by firmware there. This, when, when, yep. when, when this number is this high, the fact that we've only seen for what, what you and I and what enterprise defenders refer to as firmware, we've only seen a handful of in-the-wild attacks, maybe four or five, I can name them on, on one hand. What's the disconnect here between folks seeing 83% of folks having at least one former attack? Are we talking about routers and all those little IoT devices? Or And and the corollary to that is, if this number includes everything, what, what do you think is a, a more accurate number for our world and firmware below the operating system? Yeah, so I think two things. Anytime I've done a survey like this, I learned something new. And number two, every time I've done a survey like this, particularly internally, I want to do another survey to follow up and get more details on the first right, set I of questions. Like it left a lot of more so, questions and answers, especially around definitions, yeah, right? Definitely. Definitely. So I think what I see is um, there is a trend, a general aggregate trend up in firmware attacks. Um, I think the second thing is, is it would be nice to define even CRISPR, what is the attack and what is the scope? So if we were to take something like UFI or MBR-based firmware, which is sort of the classic, you know, BIOS that would run a PC, 
Uh, I would not be shocked that customers were attacked. I would be shocked that it was as high as 83% for the reasons that you just stated. Even if our visibility is not great, even if it is a giant attack surface, both of which I think are true, 83% would be high. When you start to think about the number of devices in a network uh, that are involved in digital transformation, so IP cams, printers, um, you know, uh, computer visualization devices that are uh, much more common in the AI ML world for doing kind of modern retail, those types of things, that starts to make a lot more sense. And so my general viewpoint is that's how customers are So they're translating, they're translating the firmware to be anything from multi-function printers to air conditioning, vac shops, yeah. and all that stuff that has some sort of firmware component and some sort of internet connectivity. Yeah, that would be my suspicion. It'd be great to double click there. Um, because when you start to add in like Mirai botnets and some of those viewpoints, I mean, I think that that it, you know, firmware in the customer's viewpoint is anything I have to write directly onto hardware. Um, we start to talk about an embedded device, whether that be RTOS or Linux, that would likely be the customer's perception. That said, I think the trend is clearly up that firmware across the uh, whole, I think, is is a viable attack surface. That's not surprising. So I think the, the follow-up here will be Let's get a little bit more specific. But in general, I think this was super useful. And the reason it's useful is there's this big chasm in what we can see. So there's two types of information that I get. The first is what I'll call automated threat intelligence. So that could come from like attack telemetry, coming from like Defender. It could be coming from network signals. It's basically data that we can collect from some sort of sensor. Wait, in wait, mass. You're, and so you're, going, you're going very fast and you're, you're skimming over a lot of things I want us to touch on. Uh, what, you, okay. what, you're ta- what you're talking about there is, um, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole yet until I get a sense of uh, getting, getting into these definitions again. Um, and you mentioned Mirai botnet. We've seen examples of uh, IoT type things. We've seen, I think, Trick TrickBot has capabilities to look to see if it can do some writing to the BIOS, that kind of thing. This stuff, none of this stuff is new. I wrote about a Black Hat talk or a CanSec West talk from the guys at Core Security ages ago on this absolute security and BIOS, uh, rewriting BIOS and BIOS firmware. That eventually got seen in an in the wild attack later on, maybe a decade later. And I know you skimmed over this a second ago. Is are we just not seeing this eighty-three percent that these folks are talking about, or are we just getting ourselves nickeled down in these definitions that we are we're just accepting this blindness? Does that make sense? Well, I think there's two things there. One, uh, you know, I think it is extremely likely that we do not see the full. But not extremely likely. It's obvious, right? Yeah. Extremely likely, you know. I, I like to, you know, try to take a, a pessimistic viewpoint. Is there. that because um, we don't know? Because but, we don't have the skills and the ability and the security research community to look? Do we? Is it? Is that because the tools and the the the, the utilities are not yet mature, or is a combination of that? Why are we? Why is visibility there so unreliable? It's a combination because when you start to think about what would be required to have. Uh, a technical viewpoint in there. It's likely going to be something like a network stack with a number of different, you know, uh, libraries, et cetera. And those types of things are not currently present in most early boot firmware environments. So just getting the information out is challenging. Now, there are solutions out there, Defender being one, I'll name Eclipsium, um, GRRSec has some open source tools there based on ChipSec for dumping and analyzing firmware. But those sort of happen after the attacker has had a chance to do whatever it is they want to do. 
So a savvy attacker, and I would think by definition, you would call anyone who's attempting to target firmware pretty savvy, you know, they are in a position to sort of hide any signals they want at that point in an operating system. So that's a fancy way of saying firmware is a little bit like dark matter currently. And so uh, it is very likely the case that even if there is a capable firmware attacker, you know, if they can pass a basic IQ test, they can hide those signals. Uh, so I think the answer is we need to increase our skill sets. Uh, and obviously, we need to increase our technical capabilities to view. Firmware is that getting well. better? You think? I, th I think it is getting better. I think uh, there one, it, you know, it always starts with recognition. And then number two, I think as customers get interested and there's been a, a NIST requirement, there's been more products on the market. There's been pretty savvy folks who I think are quite influential in kind of the CISO circles who have been a bit vocal there. I think all of those things are combining with us incrementally inching along. I still think if, you know, if you're an attacker, if I put my kind of red team wearing an attack hat on, you know, firmware is the place to be for a couple of reasons. First is it's generally the most privileged software on the machine, right? It's even more privileged than the hypervisor, at least in the standard sort of PC space. When you talk about SMM or system management mode. Number two, you know, it's stealthy since there is no optics. Uh, it's, it's hard to be seen if there is an attack. And then number three, there's a lot of opportunity. So firmware, um, conventional firmware on a complex, you know, PC is going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of code. So it can be as complicated as a, as a basic operating system. So when you combine the fact that there's large sets of code that may not always be the most secure, there's a uh, high privilege and low visibility, those things kind of come together to make a perfect. Yeah, company. I mean, you and I are using firmware as the word. I mean, it's just a, an alphabet soup of complexity with all kinds of acronyms everywhere connected to things that are poorly documented and folks don't know how to look for it. It's like, it's, would you call it a jumbled mess of, I don't know. It certainly can be. I mean, there's some there's some folks out there who are incredibly impressive right, in their the ability point, right? to kind it's of just a handful of switch. very very a tiny handful of folks, and that's and, right. and you have to assume that on the other side of the coin, the adversary side and the offensive side of the coin, that those guys are a lot more skilled and a lot more motivated and resourced to go find and plant code in these things. Yeah, I tell this anecdotal thing a lot. You know, in my line of work, I get to interview researchers from all sorts of places some of which come from, you know, government agencies or contractors. And I'm always impressed by the number of candidates with that background that have encyclopedic knowledge of firmware standards. So that actually is an indirect Absolutely. signal that tells me a lot about the potential popularity. Well, let, me put, let, me, yeah. let me play devil's advocate and, and, and say to you, now I talk to CISOs all the time and, and whenever I raise firmware or anything below the operating system or biosecurity or anything at that level, they say to me, they roll their eyes and say to me, dude, I got to freaking figure out how to get my people to stop clicking on basic phishing. I got to figure out how to patch yeah. this and patch that. I got to figure out how do I deal with the shadow IT of what WhatsApp is in my organization. What are you telling me about freaking firmware? Is that, is that a fair assessment of what defenders are dealing with and, you know, at a practical level? Oh, yeah. I think there's a fair amount of kind of treading water. Uh, and I think this report actually does a great job of talking about how often uh, responsible security individuals are spending their time on kind of this uh, recurring theme of like, fix it and then move on to the next incident, fix just enough and move on to the next one. So I think if you're one of those folks uh, who are caught on this, and we say about 62% of, of, of the respondents in the survey said they're caught on that kind of uh, treadmill, then I think that's a rational perspective. That said, here, here's my view. Um, 
a strong security program is going to have a a good mix of tactical, so fixing immediate problems, and strategic, making sure that you don't get into debt from new problems. And so I think I would caution folks to say, if you put all your eggs in one uh, basket, you're just going to sink further and further into debt, right? You've got to have an ability to get out in front of things. And if you had to pick things to get out in front of, I think firmware is potentially one that you you might select for the reasons I said previously. So it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, I'm not going to walk in someone else. I can't walk in someone else's shoes, so I can't say all the things they're dealing with. At the same time, I think, you know, kernel attacks, you know, it was just a few years ago, we thought sandbox attacks were impossible. Now we see them pretty regularly when it comes to zero day chains. And so firmware is definitely a place from my perspective that you want to get ahead of. You said 40% of the folks um, are spending uh, resources, and, I'm, and I assume this is budget and people and everything, towards proactive and, and preventative measures. But these decision makers, yep. you know, would like to perhaps focus more on, on preventative measures even more. Can you outline what, what that would look like? What are, what are some actual preventative me- me- methods that work, measures that work and are, are practical? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is patching fast. Um, I think it's surprising to a lot of folks who kind of live in the security researcher mindset. They sort of almost on the borderline of arrogance sort of say like, well, if the vendors would just uh, release patches, things would be fixed. But what we find is the faster and faster we patch, the more that that pushes challenges downstream. We all know that as try as we might, patches are not perfect. So many of our customers translate that into the need to do integration testing, et cetera on patches. And so I think figuring out an organization how to streamline that patching, uh, make it more comprehensive, make it faster. I think that is one of the top things that I would advocate a security organization to spend their time on. When you say patching, you're talking about patching at this layer, this firmware level of patching? No, I'm talking about across the board. I guess if you're asking about preventative measures, um, you know, I think we're still even in in 2021 now. You think that uh, 40% number of folks who are focused on and and spending a a lot of time in proactive preventative around uh, um, patching is a low number? Yeah, I think 39% of folks spending time on preventative across the board is just not enough. And I think a substantial portion of that from the customers I've talked to, many of who are probably respondents in here, uh, that a good chunk of that actually needs to go to patching as kind of right. prize zero. But it goes zero. back to the treadmill then, argument, right? I mean, they don't have a choice, right? They just have to be that way. That's right, I think. But I think um, there's two ways to look at patching. One is um, reactive, you know, plug a hole that's being exploited. Another is to say, you know, all, my entire organization is patched within N hours of a patch release. And the preventative component I'm talking about is that second one, which is, uh, designing your organization around being able to uh, accept patches and distribute them effectively with the right controls in place, I think that that is actually a preventative approach. Right. And it comes back to asset management and asset discovery and asset visibility, right? I mean, that's, that's the right. biggest, right? All that grunt work. <laughs> when you talk about fund- foundational yep. things and getting ahead of things. And I agree with you that the former layer is where the sweet spot is for advanced adversaries first, and then it filters down to crimeware and the rest of the guys later on. How far away you think we are yeah. from seeing? Uh, uh, how far away do you think we are from the day when a firmware attack is not a news headline anymore? Uh, I think it's in the near future because I think uh, attackers will continue to poke on that. Will increase uh, capability. You know, if we've seen kind of past historical models from browser attacks, etc., you know, there will will reach a, a peak point of awareness, which means solutions will then come on to to address those the those problems. 
and I think we can get control of this. And I think actually a lot of it is back to to patterns we've seen in the past. So having maturity around updates. Firmware is one of those places where you know there isn't an easy patch Tuesday. Yeah, Most manufacturers have not the patching and the responding to this as well uh, uh, is heavily reliant on vendors having some sort of patching pipeline and a reliable patching mechanism to get it down to end users. And on the consumer side, it's a whole nightmare. I mean, it's a whole ball of wax. But even on the enterprise side, where you, at least you have some tools to get some sort of visibility, that becomes crucial, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and the, the problem is many of those tool sets can be divergent between manufacturers. So if you have kind of a different set of OEMs across your ecosystem from one set of PCs to your tablets, to your servers, getting that comprehensive view to update firmware is challenging. Uh, and so that is not something to sneeze at today. And I think a lot of the trend upwards is, is based on that sort of lack of fundamental capability. Do you think security programs have the, the resources to absorb what is needed to protect firmware and to protect this below the operating system la- layer. And, and the question is, do buyers and enterprise defenders have to treat this as a brand new category altogether? I think there's a couple different approaches to look at. You know, I think certainly you could, from what we've seen, um, mitigate most of the in-the-wild attacks by simply staying on top of patches. The attacks that we've seen usually come post-patch and so the one that so far that that is a good approach. A second approach I think is you could work with a manufacturer who's got a quality set of security development practices on the firmware and can update fast and reliably. I'll I'll point out Surface um, uh, as a manufacturer that does pretty well there. They've open sourced most of the firmware. Um, it comes through Windows Update on Patch Tuesday through Capsule updates, uh, and the team building those security features is is highly mature is managing it with a known process, you know, based on MSRC. So that seems to be a good place. Apple's another place I would point to doing a, a really fantastic job there. Uh, and then, you know, Chromebooks have Core Boot. So I think that's a good option as well. Then there's the third uh, approach, which I favor the strongest, which is combine the first two, right, which is the ability to kind of um, do some updates, the ability to have regular uh, secure development practices, and then combine that with a hardware sandbox. So some of the capabilities that we built into secured core PCs, which is kind of like the, uh, the gold star branding around security in the PC space, it makes use of capabilities from Qualcomm, AMD, and Intel to essentially re-attest everything that the, the system needs to rely on firmware for post-firmware boot. So in essence, it says, firmware, do what you're going to do, but I'm going to check your work anyways. And th- they're going to do that through sort of hardware validation and trust. And that's a nice capability because in in essence, what it says is the firmware can lie to me or it can be exploited and do bad things. And I still have a chance to go and make that right or at least validate that before the system boots. So you could have a situation in which, you know, a firmware has been exploited, maybe an early boot. It's been used to modify some key system property. Uh, This hardware, this DRTM capability comes up a little bit later in the lifecycle it notices that things are not as they should be, and it can essentially put you into a panic mode or a recovery mode, similar to what you've seen in BitLocker in the past. And that's a good way to layer on, I think, multiple security approaches to get something that's as mature as most other security processes. But then we, we're, we're going to end up in the cat and mouse of somebody trying to subvert that and bypass that. And then we, be, I mean, fast forward, let's say 10 years, right? That becomes the cycle of trying to protect that layer. 
I, I think it couldn't couldn't be. I mean, you should think of it, in my estimation, not too dissimilar than sandboxing, which is there's a finite set of things that you can do that are in- interesting from an attacker. And as long as you can apply policy and controls to that finite set of things, then uh, you can de-risk right, those vulnerabilities. Right, but you can de-risk it for a, for a period of time, right? Do you remember when sandboxing in browsers was the hottest thing and made us recommend Chrome? We made sure. us recommend Chrome, <laughs> yeah, now it's for sure. the... Every day, right? So yeah. I mean, I'm I'm and, trying and to that, get uh, right. get you down ten years down the line. What are we looking at in this former layer? Is it the same kind of cycle of now we're just raising the bar and we're just playing this mitigation game? I, I don't think so because I think if you combine stronger software development mm-hmm. lifecycle, right? Not too dissimilar than the browser. We got away from having ActiveX controls, even though there was a sandbox, right? We still didn't want to use ActiveX controls because that's a lot of attack surface. So combining some of the approaches that um, uh, Surface has with Project Mew, Core Boot, which uh, is a, is supported by Google and others, of kind of trimming that down to just what you need, and then combining that with what Intel, AMD, and Qualcomm can provide on the isolation side. I think that actually paints a brighter future. Um, so it's not just one thing; right? it's not just the hardware sandbox that we're going to do crazy stuff inside it. It's kind of a combination of things, uh, and I actually believe that that is moving very very quickly. The other thing I'll say is. There is a, um, a a real need for the hardware manufacturers that I mentioned previously to continue to provide security capabilities. Customers are asking for that for them. The market's asking them. So they see you're that opportunity. Support, so I think that they're you're talking about hardware invested. support for a lot of these things you're talking about. That's right. So they're aggressively investing there. And so I'm actually incredibly pleased um, at where we, we've gone in just the last several years in terms of advancing. What happens to the other, let's say that's 3% of the attacks, 83% of your folks are seeing attacks. And we get in, we started this off with the definition things. What happens to the, what happens to former, the other sets of layers when there is no investment and it's the IOTs and 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 there is no, there is no economic incentive to fix it either because these are meant to be throwaway devices, right? Uh, are we? You mean how do we address this capability Correct, on these IoT devices? Correct for the rest devices? of firmware. Well, that's kind of interesting because IoT is almost uh, a particularly industrial kind of operational technology. It's the opposite of throwaway. Usually, when you make an investment, you have to live with it for ten years because it's going to be in some critical infrastructure. Uh, and so, I actually uh, think that there's a lot of interesting things you can do there. You know, number one, I can say on the Microsoft side, and Ryan, you might not realize this, but a good chunk of my job at this point is actually helping to increase the security of the uh, what we call the intelligent edge, which comprises IoT and other capabilities that connect to Azure. So I'm, I'm actually right in the middle of this. So I'm excited that you uh, you brought this up. Um, there are some state of the art approaches. I'd point you to Azure Sphere as one. That is a you know very strong hardware backed um, root of trust and boot process. It actually uses the Pluton processor, which we just announced in PCs, to uh, attest uh, and ensure all code sign is signed on the device. And there's also a hardware isolation layer that sort of separates a host operating system from an application operating system, uh, not too dissimilar than like a virtualization-based security might be on a PC. That, in a nutshell, that's a fancy way of saying Azure Sphere has kind of the the pinnacle of security when it comes to IT, uh, uh, IoT and OT. And so that's a great example of worth right, when that's things people go living in your Microsoft correctly. world, right? There's like a whole other non-Microsoft world out there. Where that's, 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 um, that's leading these numbers here in your survey, right? Yeah, but I guess my point there would be um, you can make investments now 
that will last 10 years. So just making those investments now, I think, will help us not create more debt. And then there's a second challenge, which is what do you do with the devices that aren't secure, right? So two-phase, two, two buy a good set of devices for the next 10 years that have the right security capabilities. Job one was making those available in the market. Now, job two is dealing with the, the, these existing devices. And I think there's a couple strategies there. You know, one is just identifying them and, and identifying their security challenges. About a year ago now, we purchased a company called CyberX out of Israel that does a really nice job of, of uh, from the network, analyzing, discovering, and categorizing devices based on risk, uh, which helps. And it can tell you, for example, what the capabilities of those devices are, who they talk to, um, uh, if they're being attacked. And you can use that to create sort of a zero trust idea of segmenting these different devices and isolating them based on risk. Going forward, I think what we will want to provide is the capability, and there's a number of firms out there doing this, to scan and analyze the firmware on these devices before you connect them to the network, and then use strategies like Azure's update mechanism, and I'm sure many other cloud providers have them, to keep these devices up to date. So getting that transparency along with an ability just to keep them up to date is actually something that I can say on the Microsoft side, we are investing in as aggressively as anything we are as a company, and we're a big company. Uh, and I imagine that's actually happening across the board. So I actually think uh, it's further behind PCs, but there's reasons to believe in the future this will be a containable right. And you problem. have the advantage in that you have a robust well-engineered updating mechanism and updating system. Exactly. Uh, I, I drive a Tesla, for instance. Whenever I get a, whenever I get an update yep. across my Tesla, right, you you start to see the implications of poor patching. Not poor patching, sorry, poor patch quality. You start to see the implications of a reliable updating mechanism that you can actually rely on for a vehicle that I have to drive on the road. But when a, when a piece of firmware upgrade update comes down, right, it's a, it's an exciting thing. Whether it's security or features or whatever is built into that pipeline, it's an exciting thing. It makes your dumb device much smarter two or three years after you've bought it, right? That absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about how do we get to a place where people are more people are much more comfortable to click and say, yeah, just or or to just leave it to automatically update itself uh, and have that reliable so pipeline? I, I think you know what I mean. <clears throat> Yeah. And I think this is a place where the manufacturers, including Microsoft, just need to take kind of responsibility, which is I think the customers are demanding, you know, as close to perfect as possible. They're actually quite understanding as long as you're transparent about where the problems are. But as an industry, you know, we need to get better at updates. And even though it's become sort of normalcy for us all to say, hey, these one billion devices or so get updated every patch Tuesday. The amount of engineering and complexity that goes into making that great every month is just astronomical. So I think customers will, over time, as we get better as an industry, just become more accepting. You know, I'm sure there's a few devices in your world where you don't think twice about updating. And then there's another set of devices where you're like, "Yeah, hey, this is a bit fragile right. for me. Yeah, that's the I point I'm trying to make. To it's signal. like not only fragile, but yep. it's like the the... the Downtime cost and the breaking of certain things are just not risks you're willing to absorb, right? Right. So I think what we have been doing from a Microsoft perspective is trying to uh, leverage our substantial insider community to help you know, validate some of these things, do A-B testing, many of those sort of statistical methods for ensuring quality. And they've been paying dividends. 
And I think over time, that kind of approach will be generalized across IoT, across every device in your in your world. And I do believe that those methods of having an insider program and the ability to roll out slowly and roll back quickly will result in customers getting to the point where they don't think. Uh, we're getting up in the half an hour mark, and I want to let you out on this. Um, Microsoft and others in the industry have kind of matured to the point where they have this robust, uh, secure development lifecycle. Everybody's shifting left, moving vulnerabilities more left, you know, minimizing risk that way, having your SDL process mature, all this happy stuff. And we've come a long way on Windows and some of the other operating systems and server systems um, there. Are you seeing the same level of security investment on the on the development side in in IoT firmware in some of this these uh, issues we're talking about, or are we ten years away from where Windows was with in you know in the XP world? I don't think we're ten years away, but we're not there, uh, and that is kind of a mixed bag, right? And so, for example, we've got uh, real time operating systems out there that are primarily based on being able to be efficient and run in the, you know, on tiny light bulbs. And so they don't have all the mitigations and security features at, at an and operating the system level. And the that vendor the doesn't have an economic incentive to do that because the light bulb is meant to be thrown out. It's not meant to be updated and kept refreshed for years, right? I think historically it's been thought of that way. I think that there are devices like Azure Sphere that are changing the economics and incentives. And around. Azure Sphere is, is, help me understand what that is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a combination of hardware, and some of that hardware is actually derived from you know uh, our experiences with products like Xbox and Windows that essentially develops a hardware sandbox that separates a uh, host application from the uh, IoT application on the device. So for example, you could have this custom Azure Linux as your host operating system and a separate real-time operating right, system right, host right. your application. And that gives you what the Sphere team calls this uh, seven properties of a secure device, which is things like having root of trust, compartmentalization, et cetera, et cetera. In in essence, what it does is it brings an IoT device. It's still relatively cheap, right? It's price competitive. It brings to a real-time operating system something that you can run on an air conditioner. Uh, It brings it in line with with the kind of device security you might have on an iPhone or a PC. There's a certain baseline it it can render to those devices. That's right. And you also get 10 years of updates. You get validation of those updates. You get a small trusted computing base. You basically get all the good things that you'd want in a cloud provider or your mobile device on IoT. So that's why and it's so not 10 years away. There are, like, there, are, there are tools and platforms that are, that are already available and more right. coming down the pike to help fix this. That's right. And I think that th- what that does is it gives customers an alternative. They can say, I don't have to buy this thing that maybe has poor quality security there's something else out there. In, in a way, it's kind of that transformational um, moment, right? There's often things like in mobile phones, you could say the introduction of the iPhone got people to think, I can ask for something more. You know, in my mind, Sphere is, is that for IoT security. It's I can ask for that. That thing exists. And, and why can't my manufacturer also provide that? Do you think that we, do you think there's a lot of firmware exploitation happening in APT land right now that we just don't know about? We'll be reading about in a private report next year. I think that it is a incredibly important capability for certain scenarios like per long-term right. it's persistence the, it's the on a server. persistence, right? Yeah. So if, if I was worried about a hypervisor being in the security um, uh, 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 security path, 
then I'd want to tunnel under that hypervisor through the firmware. If I was worried that the uh, the target had every kind of detection capability, firmware would be the equivalent of the stealth bomber. And you right? have to it's assume like, uh, you come in under the and radar. It's a safe assumption with the level of adversaries we've seen that they're playing in this. I mean, we've seen examples of some of it. That's already. right. That's right. And I think, you know, Microsoft Red Teams make their make their living on simulating the future of attacks. Uh, and certainly firmware for them is a, is a bread and butter technique. So that, in my experience, where the Red Teams go or where the adversaries go or vice versa. Uh, and so for me, that's the kind of uh, p, p, like telescope that allows me to peer into the future that shows me that that capability is important. Um, it's. I think it's particularly important on embedded devices, um, for example, network routers, et cetera. And we've seen some of that, you know, even if not directly uh, through through compromises, certainly indirectly through through information. Uh, and so I think that that is clearly a place that will be a battleground for the Perfect future. Perfect way to end it. Director of Operating System Security at Microsoft, David Weston, thank you very much for coming on. Come back again. It's like, this is a topic we can talk about forever. Anytime. There's so many things we could talk about, right? You know that. Uh, it's always great talking to you. Thanks. Bye-bye.